Sometimes people leaders get so engrossed in the business that they forget that it's the people that make that business successful. So we need to continue with people who are courageous enough to speak up and speak out often and loudly. Welcome back to season two of All Hands, brought to you by Lattice. I'm your host, Caitlin Holloway. If you were with us last season, you know we focused on sitting down with C-level execs to chat about how people strategy is good business strategy. But this season, we're doubling down. We're not only talking to CEOs and founders, but a wide range of people leaders, from heads of people to chief diversity and inclusion officers, to really get into some of their core practices, principles, and beliefs when it comes to putting your people first. We have an absolutely incredible guest for our first episode, Pamela Culpepper. Pamela has dedicated her career to developing intentional cultures within organizations. With over 25 years in the HR space, she's pioneered the foundation of an industry that is finally catching up with her authentic approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. As a part of her journey, she spent 14 years at PepsiCo, where she held various leadership roles, including being their chief global diversity and inclusion officer, long before it became the Silicon Valley trend that it is today. A few years ago, she left the corporate life to co-found a culture consulting agency, Have Her Back, which works with brands and companies to add advanced equity for women in underrepresented communities. Pamela, welcome to All Hands. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start at the very beginning. I would love for you to be able to tell your story to our audience in your own words. It's often surprising to me as I think back over the last 25 years, um, it, 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 it feels like so much has happened during that time. 25 years ago, I embarked upon the career of human resources um, with a degree in psychology, but more than anything, a avid interest in human behavior. And because I believe that people, when given the right circumstances, put in the right environments, um, present their best selves, and when they don't have an opportunity to do that, there are barriers that are there that, that's in their way, and it keeps them from being able to deliver their best selves. It's on that premise that I actually want it to be in human resources, um, that there is an opportunity for people to, to, to shine, and there are natural barriers that have, systemic barriers that have existed. I have um, spent more than 25 years in the in corporate America, multiple industries. Uh, I have been CPG. I have been public relations and advertising, the financial services. I've been across multiple industries. Um, the players are different. Um, some of the games mm. are the same. Right. Um, and I think because I have um, wanted to really be on the cutting edge of business transformation, cultural transformation, I've always done some level of DE&I in my work. And then uh, I would just end with my last role in PepsiCo was as head of global diversity and inclusion. And that is probably the most concentrated um, time that I spent in this space and um, very rewarding. I love the way you frame that. I think that the some of the most incredible people that I admire in, in the field of people and culture and HR really do have uh, an incredible winding path where they are, are collecting perspective and collecting and understanding this human behavior that really does ultimately impact and shape our company cultures. I feel 
like our titles have evolved over time and, and the work that we do has evolved over time. Uh, and so it's, I think it's really great for you to acknowledge that there's always been an aspect of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in your work. Uh, it didn't always have to live in the title, but having that understanding and that that reflection really does shape your perspective as you are moving from organization to organization and, and now running a company that is helping many companies mm-hmm. do this and do this work. I, I think that's a really valuable perspective to have. So thank you for sharing. For sure. For sure. Now, I have another question, a follow-on question. So you, you've shared with us a little bit about your your or professional journey, but is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about your identity? Yeah, Kaylin, that's a that's a great question. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I think about it a lot. There are intersections of who I am that collide at times, they intertwine at times, but they're always a part of who I am. I'm a black mother of a an adult male black son where there is so much context from a social perspective that's included in that. I have been a corporate executive. Um, I am a sister. I'm a loyal friend. I have uh, a niece dog. I mean, there's just so much (laughs) diversity in my family that um, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. But when my femaleness intercepts with my Blackness, intercepts with my you know, executive uh, presence, all of those things tell you so much more about who I am and how I have to move in the world. I appreciate you sharing. This is a new question uh, that I've been asking folks that I encounter in my life. I've got to tell you, it really does change and shift the the dynamic and the context of the conversation that I'm having, especially as we live in this, you know, remote first world uh, that we were yes. thrust into in, you know, March of 2020. But yes. uh, it really, really allows, I think, for understanding and connection to happen maybe a little bit differently than it would have if I just said, hey, Pamela, tell me your story. Oh, great. Yes. It, you yes. know, I, I understand your LinkedIn better now. <laughs> this is a, that's a great starting place for us to, to get now into the work that you have dedicated your career to uh, and how that works and maybe uh, is woven into the tapestry of, of who you are and how you show up every day. So thank you for that context. It's very helpful. And I'm very curious about a, a niece dog. <laughs> Well, with that, I, let's let's start with the foundation of some of the work that you do. I love that you share that you are are deeply curious about that that human experience and and how people operate, uh, just as humans on this earth. How we how we show up every day to work, how we show up uh, with our families and within our communities, I think is absolutely fascinating. And the patterns that we can see in beha- behavior and the patterns that we don't see in behavior really mean a lot. So, if we're thinking really big picture about the the details of the the work that you've done. What does it mean to you to be a people-first leader? I think there are three things. Um, I think it is being able to separate your concern for your own career and the career of others. I think it means um, balancing your team's development with your own personal reputation capital. Mm. And I think it means being curious and compassionate about the people who are put on your teams and in your functions. One of the things that, that, that I think challenges leaders is that they risk losing their own status 
when they uplift the members of their teams, right? So sometimes the best uh, conversation comes when you put the leader in front of you in a group that you're normally presenting to because they know mm-hmm. they know the topic, they know the subject matter. But yeah. we're so afraid sometimes of losing our own grounds as leaders that we won't put our talent in front of us. And we don't give them a chance to grow and develop. The right. only way they're going to do that is to be in the room with the group that's teaching them how to operate on those on in, in, in those meetings. And f- for me, it's been really important that even if I risk um, them not showing up as well as they'd like to, it's more important for me to have them grow than for me to look good. I think it takes courage to 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 do that. I love that so much. I I was fortunate to learn that early enough in my career because I had an incredible boss who did that for me. Mm-hmm. And it it really the the just the access, even to just sit as a fly on the wall in yes. those first few leadership meetings, uh really dramatically changed I, I feel dramatically changed the course of my my career and my confidence and my ability to be a part of that. I've said before on the podcast, but it's a it's a funny joke. I, I was fortunate to have a grandmother who was uh, fairly audacious for her day. Uh, and I remember talking to her early in my career about how, how I could grow, how I could develop as a woman uh, in the workplace. And, and she said, well, honey, if they don't have a chair for you, bring your own. Uh, and then I was- Absolutely. It, it's one thing to have the confidence or, or to have, you know, a grandma or, or a friend or a mentor in your ear telling you that, but it's entirely another thing to be invited in by your boss. It's the ultimate act of inclusion, right? Truly. So, so when, we, when we say we want to have examples of what that looks like, that's one of them and one of the most powerful ones. And it's so easy. It's deceptively simple. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that as as a leader who who does find the courage or the bravery to to do that uh, and and to challenge and stretch our teams to do that, uh, what you learn very quickly is it actually has quite the opposite effect. It actually does not dim your light at all. It showcases that you have the confidence as a leader to share and to to open that space up and and really give the mic to the people who are true experts in their field, uh, and then you are celebrated for having the courage to make that incredible hire uh, and to bring absolutely. that person into the room. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. What types of skills or even personality traits do you think are necessary to be a really great people leader? I've got three. Um, one is courage, because I think that there um, has to be people who uh, aren't afraid of losing their jobs, um, losing their, their status, when it comes to speaking up on behalf of and as a champion of its talent. And sometimes people leaders get so engrossed in, you know, the business that they forget that it's the people that make that business successful. And we so we need to continue with people who are courageous enough to speak up and speak out um, often and, and, and loudly. So that's one. The second one is curiosity. Um, when when I'm a, a people leader with um, a, a diverse team, I can't imagine that everything that I do uh, is going to fit the the needs of a diverse talent group. And so I've got to be curious about what it means 
for a, you know, a particular person on my team to be their best selves at work? What do, what, what do I need to know about them and what do I need to provide them as a leader in order to bring forward that best self? And then the, and the last thing is what I call tunnel vision to block out the noise. There's always going Mm. to be some competing force that says, you know, don't focus on this. That's not going to be popular. Or don't let this person, you know, be the spokesperson for this big idea because that's going to reduce the shine of your your light. That's the noise that's that's happening on the sidelines that makes people hesitate, that makes them pause, that makes them stop, that makes them not go forward. So tunnel vision on the outcome that you want for your people should be at play all of the time because, you know, when your team shines, um, you shine. And I don't think people believe that enough. I love that. Those are uh, a beautiful mantra to remember uh, for our people leaders out there listening. Uh, I, I really appreciate the the tunnel vision as well uh, and the way you phrase that because in the world of people, uh, in the world of constrained resources and competing priorities and constantly shifting roadmaps, uh, it can be very, very, very easy to lose track of things that really ought to be a priority or the things that are maybe more foundational than the the fires that are, are cropping up right in front of you. Um, and in the absence of doing that foundational work uh, that ultimately will have much bigger impact, you know, as, as your company grows and evolves, uh, it's really easy to get caught up in the sidelines of like, oh, you're playing whack-a-mole with, with HR responsibilities and duties. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Pamela, what would you say were some of the defining moments in your life or career that really impacted your approach to leading a team and ultimately starting a company? I would say it started with some feedback that I had gotten from a gentleman. I did a lot of work in M&A in the companies that I worked for. And this was an instance where I was having a conversation with a gentleman who was on his way out. He had made plenty of money and he was a casualty of the acquisition. Mm. And I was very young in my career at that, at that point, but he said to me that I know you may be getting feedback that you should dedicate as much of your time and your energy to your career so that people aren't just seeing you as a female, but they're seeing you as a, a contributing member of, of the organization. But please don't let this work get in front of your commitment to your family. He said, I'm leaving this organization having made plenty of money. That won't be an opportunity. But my kids only know my wallet. And now that I'm leaving and I have plenty of time for them, they have no time for me. Right. He said, so please let this let this be a part of who you are, but not totally who you are. So that was a defining moment. And that's led me to really focus on what it means to be balanced um, mm-hmm. what it means to be a present parent and what it means to, you know, fast forwarding to the organization that I'm a co-founder of, what it means to help organizations create the space and the opportunities for people to show up in their best light at work and at home, right? Yeah. So the focus on gender equity is really about being able to to help both the organization uh, and the women themselves um, make the make the right decisions and 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 create the opportunities for themselves to be successful. I'm I'm getting emotional listening no. to that that story as 
as a mother myself, uh, with, with young children still in the home. Yes. I'm, I'm curious, as you reflect back, you shared earlier that you have an adult uh, son. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask you to give yourself a grade or score yourself on, on following that advice, but given that you were, that was shared with you while you were younger in your career, mm-hmm. are you proud of the balance that you were able to, to strike or? I actually am. I, I have been hashtag no regrets for a number <laughs> of years, but there are things that I did at various points in my career to make sure that my son knew that I was there for him no matter what. Now, it meant that we had to sit down and think about what was on the calendar for, you know, a, a, a week and say, look, the, you've got these three things. What's most important that I that I attend and I will make sure that, I, that I'm there. I also, at one point in my career, in my global role at PepsiCo, I traveled 80% of the time. Yeah. And so things like you know, sharing diaries. I'd, I'd I'd write him some notes in his book, and he'd write me notes in Aww. mine, and and they would last us throughout the weeks. Or I would say, "Look, I'm going to be gone three days. When I'm gone three days, you get a prize. When it's one <laughs> or two days, you just get me." And so he yeah. would say, "Well, are you going to be gone three days?" Yeah. So so I just loved, you know, coming up with and sharing and even getting ideas from other people about how to minimize the guilt, right? So here's the ultimate. And you talk about getting emotional. Here's the ultimate. My son gave me a card when he was in high school that said, I don't know how you did it, but you managed to make me feel loved and valued and, and cared for, even in the midst of all that you had to do. That was a card. And and I still have it. (laughs) I bet you do. So whether I give myself a grade or not, he gives me one. Yeah. And that was most important to me. And it's uh, the real testament, right? Yes. Even just this conversation, this moment of, of conversation between us, uh, mother to mother, as we think about the complexity of who we are and how we show up in the world. Mm-hmm. But it really is, it, it is a gift to, to know that it, it can be done. You had right. a big mega role mm-hmm. in corporate America that was in, and, and gosh, talk about, uh, you know, the demand that was pre virtual and remote work friendly, uh, where the, the expectation of how you show up every day, uh, the That's amount right. of commitment and, and making up for the space that historically has been so occupied for, by others <laughs> to yes. show up and, and be all yes. of those things. And then, and you layer on being black and being female. Yeah. Right. Those are the intersections that I talk about. Those are the complex layers that, that, you know, we, we all walk around with, you know, while I'm trying to show up as the consummate contributor, you know, I'm also talking my son through things that he might be experiencing in school. So yeah, it's been an extraordinary journey. Um, There's nothing about it that I regret. Um, And uh, I'm just happy to continue to share and be a present part of the development of people. Let's focus a little bit more about the the rise of the chief diversity officer. Mm-hmm. This was back in 2011 when you were at PepsiCo. Uh, was that a role that, that actually predated you or was that kind of created for you and with you? No, it predated me. In fact, there had been two other people in the role before I was. And so if, if you think historically about the role as meaningful it, as it could be, it actually started out just like foundation roles where you mm-hmm. you go to retire, you you go to be a sage, you you go to 
live in a space where people can, you know, honor your experience. But mm-hmm. there's typically not a, a, a reason for you to go into any other role. It's like the last role before retirement. Um, really? And, and that's that's historically um, what wow. the role meant. When you think about the slowness of progress, you know, there was not a real demand for you to do a whole lot other than be a part of the the community as a liaison between the community and the company or to be a spokesperson for what the organization right. is trying to do, you know, from a sustainability and community standpoint. Um, so when I was asked to do the role, I actually turned it down the first couple of times because it had that reputation. And yeah. I was still fairly progressive in my career. I'd done a number of roles in PepsiCo already. It just felt like um, it was going to be too narrow for me. And I think because uh, of two things. One, the the CEO called and it, at the time it was Indra Nui and said, look, I need you to I need you to do this role. This is what we're yeah. trying to get done. She put a level of importance on the role that that changed how I thought about it. The role was had been important in PepsiCo, but leadership had changed, and you know sometimes the importance changed. So I, I think between that and me being thoughtful about how I could make this role uh, the most impactful um, led me to say yes. I really do feel like. The role has changed and evolved so much, uh, particularly through this last year. I mean, just went into hyperdrive. What would you say then, if, if you're reflecting back on what the role was historically, how it shifted for for you in, in doing that role? What does it look like for today's ecosystem? You know, so if I'm a company and I'm thinking about bringing on a, a CDO or a head of diversity, inclusion, belonging, uh, whatever we're calling it. There are a hundred different names for it mm-hmm. these days. But mm-hmm. uh, what what might that role look like today versus the work that, that you were doing at PepsiCo? I think it there's a requirement for it to be different. I'm not always sure that it has evolved. Um, and and sometimes it has to do with, you know, the the experience of the person coming into the role. It has to do with the maturity of the organization uh, in terms of what they believe the role should be. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with the progressiveness of the CEO who has, you know, a position of influence over what the role can accomplish. So let me start with the first. There are people who have been in this role for a number of years been in the space for a number of years. And the organization required just what I, how I described the role in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, with the shift uh, of the three pandemics, the economic, the social, the, the, the medical, because of the shift, there was an expectation that the person could change how they've operated in the organization to now be this person who is influential, who is knowledgeable, who has done the cultural work, who has shown up in a way that could influence the behaviors of the, the, of the leadership in the organization when that was never yeah. a prior expectation. So, so imagine being in an organization where you weren't required to do much. Now you are. You're either ready and able to be able to do that or you have an atrophied muscle that you've never had to use. Yeah. And you're not successfully moving the organization along. So that's one. I think the other 
is in organizations from a maturity standpoint um, has to shift how it's thought about DE&I from the past. So you bring in this leader who can take you progressively forward, but you're still locked into the way that you've always done things. So there's this passive aggressiveness, there's this resistance, there's the these unsaid traditions that underscore everything the organization has ever accomplished that the new CDO cannot break the barriers on and doesn't have enough tone at the top, which is the third thing, who says, you know, I've had this life altering experience that says I now understand what systemic racism looks like. I now understand what it means to marginalize. I now understand some of the things that we've done in the past that that disconnected us from our goal of building this diverse and inclusive environment to the fact that, you know, look back five years up until now, we've made Mm -hmm. no progress. Right. So unless the CEO and the executive team has said, you know what, we're out of patience with how we've done it. Yeah. You know, I need for us to make some progressive changes so that we are showing up in the way that we told our clients and our communities that we would. Absolutely. I hear you loud and clear on that very much. And I think, I think it's fair to point out that it's, uh, it's not necessarily the evolution of the role. It's, it's the evolution of awareness. I mean, that's a, maybe a silly way of saying it, but we'd certainly, I think many more people have had their eyes opened Mm -hmm. through uh, this last, you know, little moment in history. And I I think ultimately it's going to have a a very good and hopefully healthy impact on our organizations, but we most certainly are going through this transition. And I think a lot of companies are feeling that, uh, the growing pains and and all of that. One last, or maybe a few last things on on the CDO um, and that dynamic that you're talking about. In in order to get that buy-in, how does this person then fit into the people and culture or the HR organization? Uh, I think that there's a supreme amount of accountability and responsibility. And so how does a CDO work with a CPO or a head of people and, and that organization? Even though it's a, a two-part question, it actually is the thread and the theme of what I think makes the the CDO role successful. So I'll start with a CDO can fail at any level of the organization. There's always this debate about where it should report. Should it report to the CEO? Should it report Mm -hmm. to the HR team? Um, Does it fail if it's further down in the organization? And I think, you know, all of those could be yes, But if the CEO is uh, not progressive and not really interested, Mm -hmm. if the HR lead does not have a level of sensibility as it relates to the impact of the DEI role, um, it still won't make the progress that that, that you want. Best case scenario is when your CHRO has either been um, a part of an organization that's always had DEI in its thread or has done that role themselves. Uh, there's a combination aspect to it so that they're, you know, they're able to deliver the, the work and be the champion for the work. Yeah. But when they're, the CDO reports into the head of HR uh, and the head of HR has to juggle uh, insight over all functions of HR, it becomes a bit of a, a, of a challenge for the CDO to make headway. And here's why. 
I believe that a part of the challenge in any organization is that there are practices and policies that have fostered systemic racism or exclusivity that unless you examine those, you are not getting underneath the issues. So if I'm a a head of HR and I've got a um, CDO who's concerned about how these policies and practices are impacting the talent, and I've got a head of talent and I've got a a head of recruiting and I've got all of these other folks who are um, not only uh, owning the processes, but defending the processes. Yeah. That head of HR has to be thoughtful about how do we weave in the CDO's work into across all of those lines, not be siloed. And I've got diversity practices over here and I've got HR practices over here. Right. When when that understanding comes into play, um, there is success on, on all sides. I wish CDOs could work their way out of jobs, right? Because right. what they're doing is threaded throughout. Unfortunately, yes. that's not the case yet, but that has to be the goal that we're threading the work of the CDO throughout all of the talent processes so that, you know, the issues that have, have plagued them are eliminated. Yes, and yes, and yes. And if our <laughs> audience could could see my head bobbling up and down to what you're saying, I I have not actually heard it phrased that way in that the goal is to actually earn ourselves out of jobs or earn uh, the, those titles away because it is so deeply embedded in the fabric of your culture. And yes. every single person, every single person, not just at the leadership level, really embodies it and has accountability. It's built into every single OKR or KPI. It's it's a part of every tradition, your written rules, your unspoken rules. Values are used as a tool to bring that to life. Yes. Uh, I, I love that phrasing. I will remember it and I will give you credit uh, because that <laughs> is really, it's actually really powerful. Yeah, uh, It's yeah. not about ownership within an organization, meaning like I need this title so that I can uh, earn or climb my way here or to best position myself or that. It's not about the individual. Uh, But the reality is, and to your point, we need someone that can give it a voice until we can bleed it down into every level of the work that we do uh, internally, externally, and and so on. Uh, It really does need an advocate. It needs a voice. And some of our our clients... We are, we are actually helping to develop the CHRO to be that consummate DEI. So it's, it's like a crash course in, in how to lead the function. But um, we've encouraged some of them to add it to their title, right? So if you're not ready for a CDO, you become that person. You hire someone who can bring in some of the application, but you become the champion. If, 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 you, right. if you now own the aspects of it, you will make sure that it gets accomplished. That's a great tactical tip. I feel like we, this is this is such a great segue because I, I want to talk a lot more about Have Her Back, mm-hmm. uh, your organization that, that you co-founded. I feel like we're getting a free mini lesson, a free seminar here. <laughs> Let's zoom back out again and talk a little bit more about you specifically and your, your path and your journey from making the decision to move from corporate into uh, this incredible business. So can you tell us a little bit about that decision-making and then actually share with us what Have Her Back is all about? You know, I'd start with, um, I believe that all of us have superpowers um, and sometimes it's more than one, but uh, at least one. 
right? And and mine has always been to make it safe for people who have a desire to do something different, but are in such senior levels in organizations that it's hard to admit it. Um, first to themselves and then to others because they're expected to already know what and how to do it. Right. right? So in all of my executive roles, I've been the executive coach or the CEO mm-hmm. whisperer or the person who can, you know, create an environment for someone to ask a question that, you know, in some ways, if it was ever put in the newspaper, um, it could be damaging to them. Right. And that's always been contained in the organization that I sat in. And I felt like there was always, um, there was a bigger opportunity for me to um, share that gift uh, outside of just one organization. I also, as, you know, head of HR, sat in sessions that um, where where people's careers were talked about and their their trajectories Mm -hmm. were talked about. And so having a really clear understanding of what happens in those rooms and where the the disconnect comes for people who are not like those who are sitting around the table right. and how, you know, the how how few the opportunities are for there to be championship for uh, a diverse person or a woman to be able to 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 get an opportunity because I had an intricate understanding of that that coupled with my DEI work and executive coaching work needed more breathing room. And I didn't know quite what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. I just knew that that was my next opportunity. And and as I was thinking more clearly about that, um, I got a call from Aaron. We've got this fantastic idea. You know, we want to talk to you about it. You know, can you do it tomorrow? And, <laughs> you know, for for a calendar that has always been double booked mm-hmm. at the time that she wanted to meet was open. So we have this conversation about um, a, a movement that was started by Aaron and uh, the uh, my other co-founder, Carolyn Detman, a movement that was, was inspired by talent in the creative space leaving agencies and specifically female talent that no longer felt like the advertising world was a place that they could thrive in, um, that they could not advance. There was no flexibility for the changing opportunities in their lives. And so many of them were leaving and going freelance. They did not take the opportunity to have the discussion lightly, but they, they started this call to action for organizations and agencies to think about what is it that you know, that's happening, that's standing in the way of female creators being successful. So they had these conversations and then, you know, they they hammered out the problem, but there was no way to talk about the solution and mm. come up with solutions. So these companies were like, well, you've helped us, you know, illuminate the issue, but how do we solve it? Um, and it's in that moment that the two of them thought, you know, there's a business that that can be born out of this opportunity. And the rest is history. We started out focused on gender equity with a clear understanding that equity for all is the goal. If you start with the one demographic, you start to solve for the rest. And, and that's how we got started. If I would flow into how we had to pivot over the last, last few months or year, we moved 
to equity for all as 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 the starting point. You know, organizations yeah. couldn't start with gender with all that was going on from from a race relation standpoint, from a systemic racism standpoint. So we pivoted in a way that um, started with how do we help organizations have conversations about what's happening? How do we help them think about what to do for their their talent bases in the wake of all that's happening, whether it's the COVID-19 pandemic that created and wreaked havoc on families having to work from home with each other in the same space with a two-year-old, right? How do yeah. we how do we help organizations address those 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 issues? And that's that's really been the lion's share of, of our work over the last year. You talk about equity for all. Interestingly, you add the word authentic to too much of your your language on your website in your your collateral. Talk to me about why authentic. How does authenticity impact ep- equity or our ability to create equitable workforces? Yeah, you know the culture is actually defining it even better than we have. The the and when I talk culture, I'm talking you know, social media, I'm talking employees speaking out about what's happening in their organizations and what their experiences have been. Uh, as people get more courageous and less fearful about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, an outcome, you know, who you say you are inside and who you think you're showing yourself up as in public comes out, right? Absolutely. So where we spend most of our time is that in between that gap between who you say you are and who people think you are, whether it's your employees or your customers. And when your customers get this idea that you are the consummate, you know, employer, or you're the consummate champion of women or people of color, and then someone speaks up and says, but you only have two people of color. So how can, how can Black Lives Matter if you only have two yep. Black people that, that work for you and they're not in a senior position? Yes. Or how can you say that you are a champion of women when, you know, you have a maternity policy that challenges their ability to, to balance right. their new roles, right? So, so authentic says that when you say it publicly, there is backup internally that supports what you said. And closing that gap to me and to us is the difference between whether or not a customer continues to use your brands, you know, use your services, and whether or not they will move to the one that they think more closely aligns with the things that they value most um, and they're honest about it. Some brands we love until we find out that they represent something totally different. And it's amazing how quickly you can shift from loving that to not loving it because they're not showing up authentically to to you. Oh, I'm so glad I asked that question. Uh, what a powerful answer. I, I talk about that breach, that integrity breach between our values. I talk a lot about the difference between your held values and your shared values. So yes. Your shared values are what you put up on the wall, what you put on your shirt, and your held values is what you actually do. Absolutely. And when those two things do not match... I mean, we're, we're, we're reading from the same book here, yes. which is when, when, the, when there's a gap, that's an integrity breach. And you're going to be held accountable to that in a very different way than you were even five years ago. Yes. By your employees, by your customers, by your family and your community, yes. all of those extended versions. And that's a, yes. that, I, 
I personally think that is a wonderful thing. Yes, absolutely. But a challenging thing. Absolutely. And so it, it makes a lot of sense that that you all have expanded your your work and your offerings because I think that a lot of organizations and leaders in particular are really struggling with how to do this. And they, there is, I think that I, this could be a misstatement, but I feel like in, at least in my circle of, uh, you know, my little peek into this world, I do feel like there is a, a genuine awareness and, a, and an openness to wanting to do work, uh, but being a little bit scared of, of how to do it. What's the, Absolutely. what's the correct nomenclature today? Do, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to upset someone? Uh, it's easier for me to stay quiet or, or push my CDO or my, my head of people mm-hmm. out in front of the mic to, to own the messaging because I'm so fearful. Yes. And so I love that there is, uh, an organization like yours that is out there that can actually help illuminate, create that safe space. When you're talking about being the CEO whisperer and, and giving that space to say, we can have these conversations in a yes. productive and meaningful way. Yes. Uh, if you can yes. let down your guard a little bit and be yes. open to learning and changing. Yeah. Well, we talk about working with brave companies because you, it's not for the faint, right? Not this yeah. level of work. This is not, you know, diversity 101 or inclusion right. 101. It literally is challenging everything that you thought made you successful in the past that presented itself as a barrier and a roadblock for members of your organization. And if you're not ready to tackle that, um, we're, 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 we're probably, you know, further down the road for you until you get to a place where you are ready to do it because it, it's not an easy endeavor. It's emotional. It's scary for leaders who have been in organizations for a long time who have seen success come from the way we used to do it, right? It, it's, it's, it's scary for them to think about having to do it a different way. Absolutely. And uh, that doesn't make it less important or not important. And I, I think that you know, in a world where we have some leaders coming out and, and writing diatribes about uh, <laughs> excluding those conversations from the workforce yes. uh, as to not distract, it's setting pretty clear boundaries. And it's just more information for employees and for, for customers to recognize, okay, great, thank you right. for that information. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So here, let, let's give a quick little little plug. If someone was interested in learning more about the work that you're doing uh, and have her back, what's the best way for people to be in touch or to, to read more about the work that you are doing? There are a few ways. I would certainly go to our website, um, haverback.com, one word. I we're, we're on LinkedIn. You know, each of my partners have our own uh, LinkedIn presence. Um, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. So in all of those instances, I'd say you could find us. Excellent. We have the internet, we have the name. Uh, yes. And, and I must say the content really is good. I was not just um, schmoozing in the beginning. Y'all really have been an incredible source of inspiration for me over the years. And as I've hit challenges, uh, there's some really incredible tactical things that that I have employed. Uh, so thank nice. you for that. And please keep creating. <laughs> Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. We're going to get into the rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. First one is super easy. In a world of Zoom, virtual background or real background? Real background. What item on your desk in front of you right now sparks joy and why? Lip gloss, because it helps me 
look at myself on Zoom <laughs> all day. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Your favorite productivity hack? Music. Yes. Are you like a lo-fi beats kind of listener or what, what kind of music? Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's um, the coffee house. Yeah. Um, sometimes I, I have a, a playlist that's the upbeat productivity music. So it's just music, but it's upbeat and it, oh, nice. it, it keeps me productive. Okay. That was just the warm up. Uh oh. Now for the big boys company culture, family or sports team? Sports team. Now give us one tactical thing that leaders or people in HR uh, or on HR teams can do today to increase inclusion in their workplace. Ask their people what they need. Easy. It works. It totally works. <laughs> it <laughs> Shocking <does>. how listening <laughs> yes. hugely impacts uh, your ability to deliver. That's right. Okay. Last rapid fire. I realize I'm not going rapid fire because I just want to talk about your lip gloss and all of these things, <laughs> but... <laughs> When was the last time you were deeply proud of something that you have accomplished? When I got a note from a CEO who said um, the conversation that we just had in front of 1,500 of my closest employees had a a tremendous impact on um, my intentions around DEI um, and has, has given me opportunities to build relationships that I didn't think that I would have. So a thank you note from a CEO is probably the, the thing that I've been most proud of lately. I am, I am proud of you uh, for having that moment uh, because what, I mean, I agree as you know, someone in the HR field, this is why we show up to work every day. That's actually what, what fuels our fire because, yeah, this stuff is hard. This yes. is not fun. This is emotionally no. heavy for the people doing the work as well. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Pamela, one last and final question for you before we wrap things up here. The question is, what advice would you give to founders and people leaders out there trying to make sense of this particular moment in history? There's such opportunity here that that is open and, and ready for us to really get in there and do some good work. So how can they use this as an opportunity to build a better organization in this next chapter? Mm, that's a great question. And... As simple as this may sound, it's it's easier to say than do. And that's be the change that you want to see. Mm-hmm. So as we are helping companies be better and, and being contributing members of society, we have to remember that what's outside comes into our organizations. So if we're not showing up in a way that says, this is how I would operate even outside of this organization, then we're going to miss the mark on the difference that we can make. So, so we have to live it. You know, if we're if 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 you're not diverse enough as as an organization or as a team, even small companies, make the composition a priority, not just optically, but you 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 want to represent the people that you serve. And there's no better way to do that than to have that representation in the room. And so that's the advice I would give. I appreciate that very much. And I agree. If if we really truly aim, the, the way you say it is so beautiful, the way we aim to serve our communities, uh, we must we must do that. It's an imperative. Uh, it's not an initiative. That's right. Well, Pamela, this conversation has been so fun. I really have enjoyed getting to know you a bit better. It's so 
lovely to hear about the work that you were doing and and the evolution of the work that you're doing uh, and the work that you have yet to do. I know I, I speak for myself, but I think I can speak for all of our listeners. We we very much look forward to what you have yet to do uh, out in this world with Have Her Back and Beyond. So thank you so much for doing the work that you do. Thank you for this conversation and thank you for leading so authentically. Well, Caitlin, thank you for the invitation. It's been my pleasure. Anytime you want to have a follow-up conversation, uh, the pleasure would be mine. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode of All Hands, brought to you by Lattice. I'm your host, Caitlin Holloway. This episode was produced by Lattice in partnership with Pond People, Rachel King, Madison Lesby, Samantha Gansick, and Mastering Done by Erica Huang. Learn more about how Lattice can help your business stay people-focused at Lattice.com or find us on Twitter at LatticeHQ. Don't forget to subscribe to All Hands wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time.